Welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you listening, this podcast is brought to you by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. Our hosts serve as interlocutors, engaging in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. My name is Caroline Stauffer, and I'm one of your hosts. Today, I am speaking with Kevin Scudder in a two-part series about the practice of collaborative law. In this first episode, Kevin gives listeners an overview of the practice and discusses the values and skills one should have as a practitioner. Welcome, Kevin, to Resolutions. Thank you so much for being our guest on Resolutions. It's nice to have you here. My pleasure, Carolyn. Thanks for the invitation. Well, we are very interested in collaborative law and learning more about it. And this will be a one of two part series on collaborative law and learning a little bit more about it. Can you give our listeners an introduction on what is collaborative law and is this primarily for family law, what is the need for collaborative law? So the quick introduction to collaborative law is it is a dispute resolution process. You know, there's a spectrum of dispute resolution processes. You know, if you look at kitchen table, you know, the parties in a dispute working it out together, or you could go to mediation, you bring a third party into the room to help facilitate a conversation. When you bring in two attorneys, each party is represented, and then you bring in other experts, then that is the collaborative approach. It's a team approach to helping parties in conflict to reaching a resolution. Another style of dispute resolution is an attorney-focused resolution where the attorneys just take over the conversation and then start to negotiate on the part of the client. Then you get into a settlement conference where the parties are put into two different rooms, you know, and a mediator goes back and forth or a retired judge or someone. And then you go to a court or arbitrator, a third party decision maker. So one thing about all those dispute resolution processes is if you imagine it in your head, is that the parties lose more and more control and involvement as you move down that spectrum of dispute resolution processes. So the collaborative process is left of center where the clients still have a lot of say, they still have a lot of control in creating their resolution. You mentioned it being used really mainly in the family law area and that is still the case. It is more and more, however, being used in civil practice as well, um, which is what it's designed for. It's designed for, you know, any dispute that parties may face. Well, and it's my understanding that the parties decide on who they want to collaborate. So it's not necessarily whether they select the attorneys, but it could also be a psychologist, a person of a certain profession that could help with the matter. Is that correct? So it is correct, though oftentimes it's the professional-driven decision. You know, it's like my expertise in the collaborative worlds in the family law area. 
And, you know, I will not do a collaborative case without a coach. It's, it's when, like, and I'm going to just focus on a, a, a divorce setting. You know, when a couple is getting divorced, we'll call it uncoupling. There are three areas that we talk about them uncoupling. One is the emotional side of things. I'm a lawyer, okay? I take care of, <laughs> I don't take care of the emotional uncoupling. So we use a MHP, a mental health professional, a coach. Some people call it a facilitator to help with the emotional aspect. But also if there are children involved, we delegate the creation of the uh, residential schedule to the coach. Another area of the uncoupling is the financial uncoupling. Again, I, I, as I pointed out, Carolyn, I'm a lawyer, okay? <laughs> I, prefer, I prefer not to do budgets or financial spreadsheets. Oh, or, but they're so much fun. They're oh, so much fun. yes. And, and, you know, charging at my hourly rate to look at bank statements sure. and quarterly, you know, investment accounts. I don't think it's fair to the client and I don't do financial projections as to what certain financial decisions are. So we'll use financial neutrals in the collaborative model. And then the third area of uncoupling is the legal part. And that's what the, I think the lawyers are there for. So this is where I was talking about a team approach to helping clients create their resolution. In, is to cover those three areas of uncoupling. In a civil setting, okay, there's going to be different areas of dispute. Like if it's a business, you know, conflict, you might want to bring in a business valuator. You know, if it's an estate or a trust dispute, you know, you might want to bring in an estate planning attorney, you know, with that expertise. So it's really whatever the conflict is, Whatever area of spec expertise that you need, it's, I think, inherent upon the attorneys involved in that process to help to bring in the expertise that the clients need to get good information to make the decisions that are going to impact them. So when and if the parties decide to litigate, it's my understanding that these professionals, including the attorneys, aren't able to continue in the litigation process. It's okay. You can use the word, okay, Carolyn, we're disqualified. Okay. <laughs> there, there is. I just wanted know, to be nice. <laughs> it's okay. It's a wonderful word. We love the word because it's, it's transparent. Okay. For a case to be collaborative, you have to have two parties. Each party has to have an attorney, their own attorney. There has to be a signed contract, which we call a participation agreement. And that participation agreement has to have a disqualification for the provisions. I'm sorry, for the attorneys. Okay. Now, the reason for the disqualification provisions is, Carolyn, if you're one of the parties and I'm the attorney for your counter, you know, I'm for your spouse or whoever is the other party. It's really important that you know that I am not using the process to get information about you to use against you outside the process if the process terminates. And my client, your spouse, needs to understand that your attorney is not using the process to get information about your spouse to use outside the process. This, the collaborative process is built on trust. 
Okay, so that's where the disqualification provision is very essential to the process. The contract, you know, it's like contract law. You know, everyone is, you know, we're all, it's limited scope representation is what it is under the rules of professional conduct. And since we're modifying the rules of professional conduct, we have to have this participation agreement to make sure that the clients and counsel understand how we're modifying the rules of professional conduct to allow, you know, team uh, emails and team communication, how we are modifying the rules of discovery that instead of using interrogatories and depositions and subpoenas, we are just having, you know, open, you know, exchange of information. So that's how we use the participation agreement. You mentioned using this information, and this is a risk that we run in, into any type of dispute resolution process, the, the information being used against you. How do the parties feel if the process does go to litigation? Is it usually an easy transition or are the parties exhausted from the process and having to do this again? And do you find information does leak out? Wonderful question, Carolyn. And I want to make clear, you know, I've done over 200 collaborative cases with signed participation agreements. Okay. And, and you know, I litigated for 20 years, so I have something to compare this to. And, and as we were warming up for this podcast, I, I told you that I was professionally dying as a result of litigating, you know, going to war. Uh, every day in the family law courts. And because it was just what I was doing was not consistent or in alignment with my values as a human being. And what what I really wanted to do on this earth professionally or as a human being. So when I found collaborative practice in 2008, it took me a couple of years to lay down my sword and shield because I had some clients to take care of, but I haven't litigated since 2010. Um, so, you know, of these over 200 collaborative cases, less than 5% of them have terminated. Mm -hmm. And a case terminates because of a limited range of reasons. One is because they may settle on 85 to 90% of things mm -hmm. like pr property, child support, you know, but they just don't reach an agreement on the residential schedule. So they bifurcate the settlement. Okay. So only the residential schedule. So those, you know, those clients really, they're pretty satisfied with the whole process and they just need someone to make a decision on the final provisions of a residential schedule. You know, other situations are when you uh, you come across a personality disorder or a character trait that didn't show up in your initial assessment of the case. And, and we collaborative professionals have a duty to assess the, the process as being suitable for the clients. You know, at the beginning from the client consultation, when you see the clients together for the first time and at each meeting, and if at some point you realize, uh oh, this ain't going to work, you have a duty to terminate the collaborative process. So it, it could be, you know, all of a sudden you, you, the level of coercion 
you know, that's in the room can't be managed. It could be, you know, I ran into narcissism, you know, of one of the parties that I hadn't seen before. And it was just, this was just going to spin and twirl and twirl. And mm -hmm. we were never going to reach a resolution. So, so when a case terminates, I would say for the most part, you know, it's because they realize that the process isn't suitable for them. So they're just ready to go to the next process. Now we have a procedure for moving from the collaborative process to whatever new process it's going to be, whether it's mediation, arbitration, or litigation. There's a 30-day cooling off period, which prevents either of them from ambush litigation. I've had people try it where one person goes gets an attorney, you know, prepares motion for temporary orders, petition for divorce, and tries to serve them during that 30-day period. But because we have the participation agreement that says there's a 30-day waiting period in the event of termination, the court says, uh-uh, we, we won't see you for another few weeks here. So the transition is governed by statute. And here in the state of Washington, that's where I'm, I'm in Seattle, Washington, we have the Uniform Collaborative Law Act, uh, which is RCW 7.77. Now, I know you were going to ask about the Uniform Law, the Collaborative <laughs> Law Act. It, it, it's been adopted in 23 states and the uh, District of Columbia and the state of Missouri, you know, is in the process of adopting it as an act. So nearly half the states here in uh, the United States have adopted the UCLA. Okay. Well, I think this gives us a very good overview of collaborative law and the practice of it and, and, and what the parties deal with in this process. And I wanted to bring up something I found about you. And, and it's by Kay. It's a testimonial. It said, it is a pleasure to tell you that Kevin Scudder is a person not only with professionalism, but also a tremendous amount of compassion and understanding. He was someone who helped me with a divorce several years ago. And without his knowledge and willingness, things would not have ended up as positive as they did. I have so much respect and gratitude for this person and highly recommend him. In the time he represented me, I never once doubted his ability. If you want to be kept informed, calls answered and returned quickly, then this man is the attorney for you. Well, one of my questions is, why haven't you returned my calls? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, but reading that made me wonder, those who practice collaborative law, what values, and you mentioned values earlier, values do you think help? And, and what would you say are the skill sets that you need to have if you want to be a practitioner in collaborative law? I, th I think that's a great question. You've been looking at my client reviews. <laughs> um, you know, and <laughs> it, it's interesting too, Carolyn, on those client reviews is that some of those client reviews were written by the ex-spouse of my client, oh. you know, where they, they felt treated with such respect by me in the process that they felt strongly enough 
to write a review of me, you know, as the other party in the process, you know, that was really such a high compliment. So I think one of the values and skills is treat, not only treat your own client with that respect and openness, you know, but to treat the other party. I mean, it doesn't cost anything to treat, you know, your spouse's partner, you know, with the same respect and dignity. Okay. Because reciprocity, reciprocity, because you know that your client's best result is one where their partner gets as much of what they need and want while your client gets as much of what they need and want as well. Next Level Mediation Software is a mediator's best tool for advancing their online dispute resolution practice. It takes into account the psychological attitudes of the disputing parties and helps mediators find the key priorities to negotiate. Based on decision science and an easy-to-use interface, the Next Level Mediation Platform can handle the most complex disputes. Register today at nextlevelmediation.com for your complimentary 30-day trial of the subscription service and enter the code A-B-A-Discount-20 for a 20% discount. Okay, so there's an American Bar Association book out there called Building a Successful Collaborative Family Law Practice by Forrest Mostyn and... Adam Cordover, and I was asked to write a chapter uh, on a practice signature. And in that chapter of that book, I talk about aligning your core values with your personal attributes. And when you add those two things together and you do it authentically, okay, you're going to be a successful collaborative practitioner. And one of the things I found out is that my income went up 35% when I stopped litigating because my collections went from 65% to 100% because I, I, ha- I stopped writing off invoices, you know, for fear of getting a bar complaint or just because I'm a nice guy. And I just, you know, it was hard to, you know, these people couldn't afford the litigation fees, you know, of what it costs to go to, go to trial. So, you know, some of my values are doing quality work, you know, answering client, you know, it's like this review, it's responding, people and picking up the phone, you know, people call lawyers, and they don't expect to get their lawyer on the phone, on the first try, you know, and, you know, you, you pick up the phone and say, hey, this is Kevin. And you hear silence, because they don't expect to be talking to the lawyer, right? Um but one of my things is quality product and also exceeding client expectations. So how can I exceed client expectations? You know, and that's getting back to them in a timely way. It's, it's you know, being um, courteous, being kind, asking them questions, you know, knowing the name of their kids, knowing the birth dates of their kids. You know, I've in our collaborative work, we oftentimes give gifts to the clients or when we were meeting in person, it's harder to do when we're doing a lot of work by Zoom. 
um, I had one collaborative case where I met with the clients, the other attorney wasn't able to make it, but we were um, signing final documents. And I was work my, my client, I gave her a teapot because she was creating a new home and she always drank tension tamer tea when she came to collaborative meetings. So I gave her tension tamer tea and a nice new okay. teapot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I gave the husband a cast iron skillet. Wow. And he was, first of all, very surprised to get a gift from, you know, his ex-spouse's uh, attorney. And then he pulled out this nice new cast iron skillet and he said, what's this about? And I said, oh, I heard you many times during this case say that you thought that your spouse was going to take every frying pan and you weren't going to be left with anything to cook with. So I wanted to make sure that you knew you would always have your own pan to cook with, you know, so it's those kind of touches and things that let people know that you care about them, you know, because lawyers, we don't have that legacy. Okay, we have a very different legacy. And um, I think we can make a different mark on the world by walking differently in the world. I completely agree with you, Kevin, completely. Well, thank you so much for being on resolutions and giving us a tour about collaborative law. We look forward to listening on part two of collaborative law and, and maybe diving deep in some cases. Um, so thank you again, Kevin. Thank you, Carolyn. I look forward to our next meeting.